Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. And it's absolutely beautiful. Crystal clear waters, manatees, there's some dolphins. You see the southern stingrays cruising by, big pods of, or schools of snook, like decent sized snook, all 30 to 36 inches. And I'm like, oh man. Oh wait, you're not fishing, you're paddling. So cruise down that whole way. Some people go on the inside, some people go on the outside of Pine Island. And then you get down to Sanibel. And this is where, shortly before my race ended, I had an outgoing tide at Sanibel, and it was flat calm. And watched the sun come up, and it was beautiful, and I was cruising. I was doing five and a half miles an hour, six miles an hour. I was like, I've never gone this fast on a board. I was like, I'm flying. I was like, this is awesome. And I started eyeing in the distance. I was like, well, I don't have to go to Naples. I can go all the way down to Marco. Because when you hit Bonita Springs, there is no intercoastal waterway basically from that state park until you get down to Naples or just south of Naples. And that's when you can get back inside. So you have it's a mandatory offshore section. And that, depending on the weather, can be brutal. I was behind Scott and Josh. They started to hit some nasty weather as far as the sea state, but they were ahead of me. And I was getting it as it built and built later in that day. And I was like, ah. Oh. So finally, probably about 1.30 in the afternoon is where I said, you know what? It's not safe out here. Lightning off in the distance. The skies turned black. The seas picked up. I'm in four foot rollers. And I'm four miles offshore. This is Mike Dunlap from Barefoot Adventures, and you're listening to the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. Got a really special episode for you. It's going to be a first. First time we've ever done this. We're going to have uh, one very, very important person to the podcast that has yet to be named or introduced to the audience. 
Brock Rustand joining us in studio. He's now the Googler. He's going to be the Googler, the guy that looks up stuff and helps us out um, on the air. Thought it turned out pretty good. He did a good job. Um, so welcome, Brock, to the to the show. Hopefully we'll be seeing him more and more. Uh, today we've got a guest. Um, anybody that knows me knows that I like crazy people, um, people that tend to like to do the same kind of things that I like to do. And I say crazy. Maybe, maybe crazy is a strong word. Sometimes people say that crazy is a word that the lazy use to define the dedicated. And maybe that's what it is. And in some cases, maybe I actually like crazy people. Um, in this case, Mike Dunlap introduced me to one of our favorite guests so far, a very popular podcast with Josh Collins, who had uh, overcome a lot of issues with PTSD and other issues, balance and, and other things that he was having trouble with after sustaining a lot of injuries uh, in war. And um, the, the stand-up paddleboard was a major part of his recovery. And Mike introduced me to him, and I've stayed in touch with Mike. Mike himself is an accomplished paddleboarder, has been in several races, including the Everglades Challenge, which is a 300-mile race. He didn't finish it last year, but he's gearing up to do it again. He's got a 31-mile race this weekend, and it was a great time to catch up with him, learn about these races, these stand-up paddleboard races, and especially the extended expedition-style races, which I didn't really know about, and it was pretty cool. So everybody welcome Mike Dunlap to the show. He's got a business called Barefoot Adventures, and uh, he's a crazy man, just like me. All right, here we go. Right on. We're live. Mike, how you doing? Great. Good to be here. Awesome, man. I'm glad you could come. So you have a... Uh, Busy weekend? Yeah, planned. a little bit. What do Just you got a little planned? bit of a workout. What kind uh, of workout is it? Saturday is the Chattajack 31, which is a 31-mile paddleboard race um, down the Tennessee River. Mm. Have you done this? You've done this before. When, I, right? My first one was last year and was bitten by the bug, so signed up for more, more pain, and then I regret it halfway through the race, and then I'll probably sign up again for next year. <laughs> Um, you've done other ones, right? Like longer ones? Uh, last year was my first paddleboard race ever. Um, and half the people that I was meeting and talking to, they're like, so you've done Chattajack before? I was like, no, this is, uh, this is my first race ever. And they're like, you signed up for a 31 mile paddleboard race for your <laughs> first race ever. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you're nuts. <laughs> um, so I parlayed my finish in Chattajack last year and signed up for the Everglades Challenge, um, which is a little bit different style race, but it's a 300 mile race and it's an expedition style race. Um, and that goes from Tampa, Florida down to Key Largo, Florida. What does an expedition style race mean? Uh, basically, if you want it, you take it with you. So all camping gear, safety gear, food, water, um, all in bags, strapped to the board and... So no support when you're out there on no the water, nothing no support at all whatsoever. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty serious. So you had done a few things like that before, or that was brand new. Uh, doing something competitive wise, um, in that arena was new to me. Um, I've done stuff on the board, um, just for knocking around and saying, hey, I think it'd be cool to go explore a different area 
on the paddleboard and then spend the night. So mm. kind of a Everglades challenge light, um, but in my home waters in Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. What time of the year does that Everglades challenge take place? It's in March. Wow. Um, so for me being, being a northerner, um, training for that is a bear through the winter. Mm-hmm. So wearing dry suit and having responsibilities at home for work and, and kids and wife and everything like that. Um, I have to get in workouts where I can. And luckily my wife's super supportive of this. Um, she's already booked her condo down in, <laughs> in Key Largo. So the boys spring break is, is that week and they're going to spend their spring break in Key Largo. And then Hopefully you'll just meet him there. I'll meet him there. (laughs) Man. Well, March, um, has some challenges with bugs occasionally. Did you run into the bugs? Um, not so much bugs. Um, the weather was very shifty. Um, it started out real nice. Um, and then we had a prevailing westerly for two and a half days. That Mm. was just brutal. Um, so on a paddleboard, the worst wind, some people say is a headwind for me, the worst wind is something off, off your quarter. Mm. Um, just because you're stuck paddling on one side. Right. And so paddling on my left side for the better part of two and a half days, I thought my left elbow and my left shoulder was going to (laughs) explode. Um, and so I did what I could to kind of overcorrect so I could at least get two or three paddle strokes on my right side before another 60, 80 paddle strokes on my left side. It was right. It was brutal. So pull, we got Brock here today. Brock, uh, this is a new thing for us. We got Brock in here to help us pull up some things. Pull up the uh, the the map of Florida, like South Florida, um, so we can see just the the route that you're taking. Because. Um, where did you start? So the start is a, <clears throat> it's actually just south of St. Petersburg. Um, and there's yeah. a state park. And then most of the, most of the course is going to be run down in the intercoastal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple bigger crossings. Uh, you cross the entrance into Tampa Bay. Um, and then you cruise down through Sarasota Bay. And then it's a lot of channels um, and the intercoastal down around Venice. You go around the, the Venice airport. Right. Um, and then cruising down. And then you hit checkpoint one. Um, Where Where's checkpoint one? At the Everglades? Uh, no, checkpoint one is just south of Venice. Okay. Um, so you're going to go that far before you have even one checkpoint? 62 miles is checkpoint one. Seems like a long way. Um, like. Everybody's kind of fresh off the starting line. You'd think that that would be that would be kind of where things go bad, like uh, in the first ten miles, probably for a lot of people. Yeah, and it, and it has. Um, some people have have dropped after the first crossing for whatever right. reason, physical or or mental. But um, they they run two events concurrently. Uh, one is the ultimate challenge, uh, and that is basically a race to checkpoint one. Um, so people that can't commit in an entire week for the event, mm-hmm. they'll sign up for that. Um, so it's a 62 mile race. 
for them. For everybody else that's committed to go to Key Largo, it is checkpoint one. And there's time parameters and cutoffs um, and for checkpoint one. And you go in, you sign in, get back after it. Um, some people spend too much time at checkpoint one. Um, and so it's when it's nice, you paddle. When it's not nice, you paddle. Um, <laughs> but the... The Everglades Challenge is not just a paddleboard race. Um, paddleboarders, last year there was only five of us. I guess there's only five people crazy enough. Hmm. Um, and of those five, two finished the entire race. Um, and that was Josh Collins and Scott Based. Yeah, we had Josh on. Right. That was a great podcast. Um, you introduced me to him. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. Um, and Josh is partially responsible for me doing half this crazy stuff. So, um, but the cool thing about those two guys is last year's finish, they finished together. They had both previously finished the Everglades Challenge on different years. Mm. So they were kind of battling and talking smack back and forth before the event. Who's going to be the second person to finish? Now, in the history of the race, and I believe it's been going on for about 15 years, there's only been four paddle boarders who have completed it hmm. so my hopes is that i'll be number five um and we'll see wow so go to uh just the regular um map like the um the just your regular itunes uh, you know apple map um and then you can go to the satellite view so when you get to the everglades um do you is there a route that you have to take, like a mandatory route, or can you, no, if someone could navigate better than someone well, else, then... There's a, a separate side challenge that if you follow exactly, you follow the the Everglades satellite. waterway, mm -hmm. um, the, marked, the marked route is the national park set up. Um, so Venice, Englewood is where checkpoint one is. Mm -hmm. um, and then as you travel south... From there, one of the biggest challenges is um, Charlotte Harbor. So in the top right. and Boca Grande. And then from my history, I'm like, okay, this is big water. And the way I'm paddling in three to four foot waves. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, oh, Boca Grande. That's where they have all the tarpon, tarpon <laughs> and, tournaments. And the sharks. <laughs> and, and then you're like, and what's one of the big concerns of this tarpon tournaments? is get the fish in and get a good release before the hammerhead gets it. Right. I'm like, and I'm out here about the size of the tarpon that they're catching. That's great. <laughs> did um, you go through, did you go through, um, the pass? Yeah. Yeah. I went across. Um, and then because we were getting that West wind, I cut on the, the backside of Kaya Costa, um, the state park mm -hmm. and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, crystal clear waters, manatees, there's some dolphins. You see the Southern Stingrays cruising by, uh, big pods of, or schools of snook, like decent sized snook, all mm -hmm. 30 to 36 inches. And I'm like, oh man, oh wait, you're <laughs> not fishing, you're paddling. Um, so cruise down, um, that whole way. Um, some people go on the inside, some people go on the outside of Pine Island, and then you get down to Sanibel. Um, and this is where shortly before my race ended, um, 
I hit an outgoing tide at Sanibel and it was flat calm and watched the sun come up and it was beautiful and I was cruising. I was doing five and a half miles an hour, six miles an hour. I was like, I've never gone this fast on a board. <laughs> I was like, I'm flying. I was like, this is awesome. And I started eyeing in the distance. I was like, well, I don't have to go to Naples. I can go all the way down to Marco. Um, so taking this that's the route, route that I was on the way outside like that. I was thinking, mm-hmm. um, because when you hit Benita Springs, if you cut in like that, you're going to, that adds a lot. right? So in Benita Springs, there's a state park, mm-hmm. um, and there is no intercoastal waterway basically from that state park until you get down to Naples or just South of Naples. And that's when you can get back inside. So you have, it's a mandatory offshore um, section. And that, depending on the weather, can be brutal. Right. Um, I was behind Scott and Josh. They started to hit some nasty weather um, as far as the sea state, but they were ahead of me. And I was getting it as it built and built um, later in that day. And I was like, ah. So finally, probably about one thirty in the afternoon, is where I said, you know what? It's not safe out here. Lightning off in the distance. The skies turned black. The seas picked up. I'm in four foot rollers and I'm four miles offshore. Mm-hmm. So what kind of communication do you have with a race director or anyone at this point? Like, um, We have a, a number of different safety um, items that we have to carry. Uh, a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I carry two cell phones. We have to have a spot tracker mm-hmm. with us. Um, so they also track um, your progress. And then each day you have to send in an okay message. So you have to check in. Um, and then you also have obviously the SOS function of the spot, which is safety. And then they also make us carry a, a personal EPIRB. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's worst case scenario so if something happens to this you have this and if something happens right so there's there's a lot of backup there but it seems like the epurb i mean the way those things work is if if you well on a boat i know if if you go down and it gets wet it activates an sos signal right yep so you're on a paddleboard how are you keeping that thing dry well it's it's not hydrostatic release okay um so it's you wear it on your person. Okay. And so it's a manual activation. Okay. I got you. And then it's a manual activation for the spot device. Right. Um, and so if something were to happen beyond that, uh, if you were to somehow fall and knock yourself out, well, you have to be wearing life jacket, obviously. Right. Um, but, and then I'm tethered to the board with an ankle leash. So So they probably are watching. And if you aren't making any headway for, quite some time somebody's coming to check on you um not really they're they're (laughs) they're not going to check on you um because my pace slowed considerably um when i was up in charlotte harbor and the winds were just ridiculous um and so i actually called them i was ready to throw the towel and she's like have you slept and i was like I got about an hour and a half sleep last night. She's like, go to get some sleep. Call me in the morning. Tell me what you think. Well, I woke up in the morning, felt like a million bucks. 
and got back after it. So wait, there's a big hole in the story. You're four miles okay. offshore. There's there's four footers. The light, the sky's going black. There's lightning everywhere. You call in, ready to throw in the towel. No, and she actually, says, "Go get some sleep." That was prior. Okay. Um, so the day before that um, is when I was up in Charlotte Harbor. Okay. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I can do this, paddling on my left side the whole time, and was ready to call call it quits. And she's like, get some sleep. So I got some sleep the next morning, woke up, felt like a million bucks, sore, but mentally in a different place. So let's talk about the sleeping thing. Cause I'm very interested in that. Um, you've got, or lack thereof. Well, you're right. <laughs> what did you, how did you prepare for sleeping? Bringing, I mean, like, are you, look, you have a hammock, you've got a, what do you have? One of, so you have a checklist of all the stuff that you have to have on board. Um, and so one of them is sleeping. So some people bring a tent. I had a, a hammock. So I was like, well, the hammock's going to weigh the least. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm going to have. Might I might be a, able to suspend it over the water in mangroves or something. Right. And that was my, my thought. You have know, sleeping bag. Um, I also had a ground cloth. Um, and that's what I wound up using anyway. I didn't touch my hammock. Huh. What kind of sleeping, sleeping bag? What's that? What kind of sleeping bag are you choosing? Um, the bag that I had for last year was actually my wife's old North face sleeping bag. Um, and I was like, well, I'm probably not even going to use a sleeping bag because when I'm tired, I'm just going to pass out. Cause <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't realize, but Florida is the number one state for hypothermia. And more people get hypothermia in the state of Florida than any other state. And that's mostly because a lot of people are on the water and there's a lot of wind. And, you know, if you're, if it's our, if it's only 65 degrees and the wind's blowing 20 and you get wet and you stay out there for a long time, I mean, it's a recipe for hypothermia. And like talking to the people that did the, um, the, the, um, the skiff challenge last year, which I'm now signed up for this year. Uh, that's what everyone has told me. Like you get freezing cold. That's the thing you're freezing and that's April 1st. Right. So in March you could have some serious conditions where you're wet all day. Your sleeping bag could turn into a, a 40 pound. Uh, right. And that's one of the other things that we have to have on is a, are not on, but with us is a hypothermia kit. Okay. Um, some way to avoid hypothermia. Um, and so you have your clothes that you have to pack and it's designated that you have on the water clothes and strictly off the water clothes. So when you can't touch the water while you're wearing your off, off the water clothes. What are those? Like, um, what do they mean off the water clothes? Like just something dry and warm, something dry and warm fleece mm-hmm. and that's tucked away in a dry bag and don't touch it unless you're off the water. Um, so I had that and then packed in the very bottom, I had a semi-dry suit that I wear up in Maryland for winter paddling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't take much of effort to start sweating even when it's 20 degrees out and you're sealed in this thing. Right. Um, so a little bit of exercise wearing that and you're going to stay warm. Um, so that's, it's one of the concerns that they've, they've addressed. 
Um, and yeah, hypothermia is definitely on the radar mm. um, during that. Now, paddleboarding is a little bit different. In the Everglades Challenge, they have guys in sailboats where, yeah, it's grueling, but they're sitting, they're holding lines and they're holding a tiller. And from a physical standpoint, not not nearly as demanding as paddleboarding. Mm. Um, I have a choice where either I'm paddling and I'm moving or I'm not paddling and I'm not moving. Whereas they can sit back and still right. make Plus way. Plus the tiller. The tiller seems to be like a, a real game changer. Like you're saying, yeah, you got a, you know, a right hand wind for an extended period of time. So on the paddleboard, you have to paddle on your left side, but the kayakers or whatever, I don't know if it's allowed or they're different they divisions, but they can have, you know, the rudder or a tiller. And, on this. and that was one of the changes I made on my board for this coming year. You have one. I have a rudder. I haven't installed it because I'm not going to use it for Chattachack, but it's sitting in the garage waiting for install. So are there any um, classes like, you know, rudderless or, you know, you always have, you not, always have these different classes, like size of boat or something like that. Not specifically for paddle boards. Um, basically paddle board is, it's a paddle board. So you're using, you're using your strength to paddle and that's it. Um, but the other categories is, they have kayaks and canoes, um, and then they divide those kayaks categories. So some of the the Hobies and the other ones that have sails or foot paddle, right. foot foot controls. So they have foot control ones, and so some of the guys have three methods of motivating. Yeah. Um, so it, whether it be sail, whether it be sitting riding a bike, or pulling out a paddle. Um, and if you look at the where they're ranking, they're going to say, obviously, we want to sail first. Number two, they're going to pedal. Mm. And number three, we'll dig out the paddle. And so it's kind of funny. It's like it's a kayak, but paddling is your third option. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I mean, it's, it's probably the, the least comfortable, the least efficient. Um, right. And some of those and the. With the Amas off the side, those things are big. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy that they basically married two boats together, two of those. So instead of having an Ama on either side, it joined the other kayak. Mm-hmm. So they were a tandem kayak, but next to each other. Right. And then they had Amas on the outside of that. Um, so super wide, but to each his own. Yeah, um, and then so they the, also have sailboats. The um the paddleboarding is like the the purest pursuit of. I mean, that's like the most extreme way you could try to do this race, right? I, extreme is one way to put it. Yeah. Um, crazy, insane, all been described for it. So. Kind of reminds me of this other thing that happens in um in North Dakota, I think, or South Dakota, or somewhere way up there, and it's a super extreme. Uh, race in the coldest time of the year and it's like a long race and you can either uh, cross-country ski it you can snowshoe it or you can run it and I think you can maybe even dog sled it I might be wrong I can't even remember the name or we'd look it up but um, it is extremely tough and so the people that try to run it that's like the most pure 
and Ted. and they have to like pull a pull a sled with it. I mean, it's like ju- just like what you're talking about. Everything is self-contained. It's tough. Um, so what made you? Um, oh, I wanted to ask you about this though. When you get down to like Marco, and then you go through the ten thousand islands. So and, and then even even further south than that, you're going to hit the Everglades. You can you can um, navigate any which way that you want. Yeah, I, the sailboat guys they stay offshore, mm-hmm. and ultimately they're in the same race but different class. Um, but a lot of other guys, depending on the wind and the weather, um, paddleboard guys, we're actually seeking to get out of the wind. Sure. Um, current current affects us a little bit, but the wind affects us ten times more because we're completely out of the water. That board's only sitting in the water an inch to two inches in the water. Um, so anything above the water is more of a sail. And mm-hmm. unless it's right at your back, which it never is, um, it, it's against you. So you bounce, bounce through and you down through the Everglades and some of those. So shoots. I mean, if you have to go around Cape Sable like this, because you're not comfortable navigating through here or whatever. I mean, you can cut off a major slice right there and then another. Right. So, so they do have a competition within the, the race, um, that if you do the, the intercoastal or the, the trail, the water trail through the Everglades, Mm -hmm. that's marked by the national park service to include going through the nightmare. Um, when you finish, yeah, you get your your little award for finishing the race because it's not who's first, who's second. It's it's finish or not finish. Um, but also on top of that, you get a little shark's tooth saying, "Hey, yeah, I went through the nightmare." Hmm. Um, so what's what's the nightmare? So I know the, Brock doesn't know what the nightmare is. So the nightmare is right if you zoom in and then go a little bit north. A little bit further, a little bit further. It's up in here. There's a little track that cruises through. And I might be off. Is it this one? Now, now it's between uh, one of the creeks and the rivers. Um, And it is incredibly overgrown. It's tight, very tide dependent, um, and a lot of that water just will sit. Hmm. Um, Sounds like a buggy place too. It, it's incredibly buggy. So if you don't paddle, if the mosquitoes are friendly, they'll carry you through. <laughs> um, Josh and Scott both went through through the nightmare last year, um, and. He, You'd have to ask Josh what the water tastes like in there. Yeah, no, um, I, I bet that it's. I bet actually, that it's tough. He actually had some video of it um, when they went through, and it was like, yeah, that's uh, that's a challenge. So, if you're thinking, all right, your goals for the day are you're going to paddle 45 to 50 miles a day, and you're like, cool, and then you get to this point, there's no way you're doing the speeds that you need to accomplish that. So it's just making for a longer day. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you'd be lucky if you can make two miles an hour through there. Hmm. Um, because you're constantly ducking, you're pulling yourself past mangroves. Um, 
maybe over fallen fallen mangrove trees. Wow. So the advantage of going through there is that it cuts off a, a significant amount of of space off it, the outside, or it is it just can, kind of the thing that people want to do? It can if you if you have time. Um, and it's not so much the they're cutting off the time, um, because there are other quicker ways, but it's just it's become a thing. Hey, if I'm doing a 300 mile race and you're saying this is, I, I've signed up for the this thing, which is incredibly daunting and and tough, and you're saying, hey, but if you do this, which makes it a little bit harder, yeah, you also get rewarded for that. <laughs> you're like. Well, sign me up. Um, And you don't have to make those decisions ahead of time. So it all depends on your timing, um, where you're at, at that stage of it. Um, And so you, the other checkpoint, so you have Chocoloski, um, which is checkpoint two. Um, Flamingo is checkpoint three. And if you do the inside section, um, there's a short portage. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Any of the guys in the bigger kayaks, yeah, that it's a challenge because now you have to pull everything out of the water, walk across the parking lot, and then put back in in that in the marina. Mm-hmm. Um, so then checkpoint three is is flamingo, and then it's a crossing of the Florida Bay. Um, and in that regard, it's kind of important for GPS and kind of know your position because as you know all too well all those mangrove islands all look oh, the same well and, i mean and that's if it's during daylight right of course it you know getting lost in this area is one thing but i mean coming through here this 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 lake ingram hell's bay all the way up from chukalusky to cape sable or chukalusky to flamingo that's the place where man i mean so easy any one of these little little lakes back here has dotted little islands in there that you can get turned around in yep. very, very easily, and, very easily. And there are markers with the reflectors right? Um, for night, but after the hurricane, um, I haven't been up in that section of the Everglades in years. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make it that far last year. Um, this year, I'll let you know how it goes. But, um, but after the hurricane, a lot of those markers were gone. Yeah. I wish I could tell you there's so much of this area that I've never been in at all. There's some of it that we fish in regularly, but, um, sometimes we'll go and do, you know, one of these, um, paddleboard shows or, or take a paddleboard up into one of these little places and you, you pull all, or you paddle or, or pole or whatever you're doing all day long, catching some fish. And then you look at the GPS and, and you kind of track your, your progress. You're like, only went, you know, an eighth of where I could have gone, and we were there all day. I mean, there is there, that's lifetimes of stuff to explore. Yep. Now it's one thing to to take a direct line through there, and it's another to like explore every shoreline. Right. And when you start talking about exploring every shoreline, I mean, there are people that probably have done it, like they've spent their whole life in the Everglades, and and that's just what they like to do, but. For the most part, there's so much of that area that's never been touched, never been seen, never yeah, been a co- fished. A couple of years ago, um, I actually played around in Hell's Bay area mm-hmm. um, and stayed at the, at the different chickies um, and went out through the Hell's Bay canoe trail on, on paddleboard. Mm-hmm. And that was just for me to familiarize myself around and in the Everglades. 
a little bit different from being in a boat or like a skiff and right. and you're like, well, it's getting kind of dark. Let's get the heck out of here because it's very real possibility getting lost in the Everglades. Um, so at that point, I was staying at the Chicky and I would do day trips away from the Chicky mm-hmm. and I'd be like, okay, I'm staying at Pearl Bay Chicky and I'm going to paddle over to Hell's Bay Chicky. Well, I was like, cool, I'm going to stay the night at Hell's Bay and then go to a different Chicky. Got over to Hell's Bay Chicky and the wind was just howling, blowing 25 knots and where it was coming from, the wind was coming from. There was no shelter from that wind. Hmm. I was like, I'm not staying here tonight. And turned around, paddled back to Pearl Bay. Whoa. And so a like, chicky brock is a uh, like a, a, a flat dock that the park service has built. And it's kind of there. It's on every chart. You And it's like a, a place that you can go and camp. Like So there's there's no hard ground around these areas. So it's like you camp there or not at all. Um, yeah. It's... Uh, but the, but it's really cool because they have them they have them all over and you can go and camp there you can take a boat there or a kayak or a paddleboard or whatever um, and they're they're usually very well marked a lot of them have bathrooms. Um, Will you bump into many other people at a chicky? It depends on the time of year. Okay. Um, for the chickies, before you set out, you have to check in at the ranger station and you have to basically make a reservation. Oh, um, cool. They don't take advance reservations, so it's. You make a reservation that morning um, for your stay or along your itinerary. So, hey, I'm going to be at this chicky this night. I'm going to be at this chicky this night, this chicky this night. I was there for a week and the only people I saw minus two or three guides zipping around in flats boats um, and some of the, the bigger pockets of water were people in kayak coming out when I was going back in. Hmm. And that was after a week. Oh, wow. I was like, it's kind of cool not <laughs> seeing anybody for a week. It's easy not to see anybody back there. Well, and and then you're saying like, you're going to be at this chicky and this one and this one, if everything goes well. Right. Right. Like, and so uh, there might be a group of people, like I see them back there uh, often and there'll be like eight canoes following one another, which is probably very smart for hmm. uh, if you've never been there, it'd be wise to be there, but it, it would be easy to pass one of those things. And now you're like, we should have been there by now. We really should have been there. And now you're just, you missed it. Like, and they try to put them in strategic places to where you're not going to miss it. But right. there's so many islands and so many different uh, things that you could do in different ways that you could easily get off trail. And so you might show up at Chicky and there might be eight canoes there. <laughs> like, uh-oh, where am I going to camp? Yep. Got a little problem, but, uh, yeah, that's interesting, man. That, that race is, that thing is beastly. So what in the world makes you, you've obviously done some other things like this. Have you? I don't know. I would imagine that if you're signing up for a 300 mile race through the Everglades on a, on a paddleboard that you've either done like triathlons or some sort of endurance event you know, prior I'm, to this. I'm not a big runner. Um, my new mantra is. Running is for people who don't paddle. <laughs> um, so I, I've run five and 10 K races. Um, I played soccer all growing up. I wrestled. Um, so I've, I've always been in shape and always been into sports and stuff like that. Um, probably the most extreme events that would 
be anywhere remotely like this is a buddy of mine from high school. Actually, we've been friends since middle school. We lived together in Key Largo, and PJ built a schooner underneath our house in Key Largo. Uh, and it was a Bulger light schooner. It was 25 feet long. And through life and everything, he was living up in New Jersey. And I was in Maryland. And he's like, hey, do you want to partake in the Great Chesapeake Bay schooner race? <laughs> and I was like, sure, dude. Why not? And if you haven't seen a Chesapeake Bay light schooner, it's a... It's not meant for long voyages. It's for knocking around. It's lightning fast. It looks gorgeous. Um, but we signed up for this great Chesapeake Bay schooner race, and we're like a micro schooner compared to 86-foot-long ocean-going <laughs> schooners, and we're just flying. And we pulled out one year. Uh, we made it... Um, the race was, for us, I believe it was 120 miles, and we pulled out after 80 miles in when we got off the in the middle of the bay, cold front, blowing 30, 35 knots out of the north, incoming tide into that wind, and then we were getting the fetch out of the Potomac River. And up until that race, if you were to tell me that 10-foot waves were possible in the Chesapeake Bay, I would have told you you're nuts. <laughs> but it's possible. Um, so it was it was pretty crazy. Um, and then two years later, I guess we didn't learn our lesson and we signed up again. Um, <laughs> except that one turned out to be totally different. Instead of the wind out of the north, we had wind out of the south and it was right in our face. And all these boats are trying to tack across the entire bay and not going anywhere and so around midnight we're like this is ridiculous we're gonna miss the post-race party because we're not gonna be able to get there um uh, and out of i think 35 boats that started that race that second year um i think there was 14 that finished mm. the rest just said you know what this is ridiculous we're not going anywhere. We'll pull out and then meet everybody down. So it's it's a race from Annapolis down to Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, so a very cool race. Um, and they do it for to honor the history and to also save the bay. So um, charity event and stuff like that. And it was pretty wild. Hmm. That's interesting. But what what got you into the paddle boarding? Um, I tried paddle boarding a few times um, and really enjoyed it. Um, and the the first time I really saw potential in, in the paddle boards is we went down to um, South Caicos. My wife did school for field studies uh, on South Caicos. And we went back as kind of a 20-year revisit mm -hmm. um and i was like south gecko's that place is known for bonefish <laughs> i was like yeah we definitely have to do that um and at the time and i think still um there's only one outfitter down in south gecko's it's not really an island that's geared towards tourism mm -hmm. um but bebo 
is the outfitter down there. And the way our South Caicos is sort of like a, a backward C. Um, and that the entire inside is just a flat and the deepest water you may be in is knee deep. Hmm. And the only way to get out onto those flats is either by a paddleboard or an airboat. Bebo just happened to have both. Huh. Cool. Um, and so we went out on the paddleboard and we're able to stalk, stalk bonefish. Um, and you could either cast from the board or step off, drop the anchor on the, on the paddleboard and then stalk them on foot. Um, and I was like, that's awesome. And then that, that turned me on a little bit to the potential for it. Um, started seeing guys down in Florida fishing from the paddle boards a bunch more. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I can totally do this up here because of some of the areas that I fish, um, more protected waters and, um, and and that's for striped bass and stuff like that. First, uh, everything, um, whether it be freshwater or whether it be saltwater or brackish. Um, so striped bass, bluefish, speckled trout, um, redfish, uh, freshwater. We have white perch, yellow perch, largemouth bass, catfish, pickerel, um, carp. Um, and you're doing all that from a paddleboard. Paddle yeah. Um, and so to, to back up a little bit, um, I formulated Barefoot Adventures, um, which is to be my retirement gig uh, and slowly build it over time before retirement. So um, retirement from? From the fire department. Mm-hmm. You've, mm-hmm. Been on, you've been a career firefighter, right? Yep. Um, I'm four and a half years or 14 and a half years in. Um, so April will be 15 years. So I'm looking probably at 20 years. Um, so another five years. And that's what I always like about firefighters. I have a number of friends that are firefighters, but there's always like this, this opportunity to have like a side gig going, it seems like. That's because our schedule allows. Right. Um, And I mean, but, but you'll have some people that are like fishing guides, some people that are realtors, some people that are, you know, whatever this complimentary thing is like, my friend is a a fishing guide and he's also gotten his pilot's license and he's, he, it just affords a great lifestyle. If you, if you really are like passionate about a couple of things and, and I I don't know, I've, I've even told my sons, I'm like, should check into the fire department, man, because that's like, it's pretty sweet gig. Well, And that's, I think that was one of the first times I, I sent you an email, um, when your son was talking about the, his EMT course that he took, um, being a paramedic, I was like, yeah, he's totally on it. And I'm listening to him. I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he loves so many, that. So many times you hear people talking about it and you're like, all right, you obviously don't have a clue. But everything that he was talking about, I was like, he's spot on. Like I was what? like, just just the details and and his going over his curriculum for the course and and the need for different things like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like. Yeah. yeah well, first of all, that course was run. It was an extremely um, condensed and uh, intense course run by Knowles and Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. They do an outstanding job. My other son did a program with them in Alaska this summer and came back with a similar experience as far as 
the way the program was run and the quality of instructor instructors and the curriculum and how well organized it was and how professional the whole thing was. And that's what Turner, my older son, he came back from that EMT course and he was just like this. It was great. And it really changed him in a lot of ways because he had taken a year off uh, to become an elk hunting guide. And I had kind of pushed him along the way of like, probably pretty competitive to be an elk hunting guide. I don't know. It seems like it would be competitive. A lot of people want to do that. So maybe you could do a couple of things that would help you stand out from the crowd. Yeah. Like, and he was like, like what? And I'm like, well, what if you were an EMT or wilderness EMT? I mean, you're going, you're taking people into the back country on horseback. Lots of things could go wrong. I think it would make any outfitter feel better if you had a train, any sort of trained medical personnel back there. Uh, and he was like, okay. So we looked into it and he finds this Knowles course. He goes there and the people that were in that class were a lot of um, medical students, a lot of people that wanted to to go much further than he had anticipated going. And he kind of was very intimidated at first because all these people had a lot more credentials, a lot more experience. A lot of them had worked in emergency rooms and done all that. He had none of that. And so he was kind of intimidated at first. And then after about a week, he was like, I'm right in here with these people. I can, I'm doing the same thing that they are. And so then he started thinking, well, maybe I really like this. Maybe I can take it further. So he starts thinking, well, maybe I could be a paramedic or maybe I could do something else. And then like Brock, he's getting, he's uh, trying to get into medical school right now. So he talked to Turner about medical school and Turner decided he's going to go back to school after this layoff. And since he's gone back, He's been trying to get whatever prerequisites he would need for medical school if he he hasn't decided he wants to go, but if he decides to go. And and talk about what a difference a year makes because he matured, but he also saw a direction that he wanted to go. And he also worked a couple of crappy jobs, not the elk hunting job, but a couple of other jobs. And he goes back to school and he's been making straight A's ever since. I, I mean, that it really refocused him, but he also kind of saw this potential of, of medical school, like as something That's... that he might want to do. And I was like, well, I mean, if you go down that road and you decide you don't want to do it, what, what, what's the harm you've made four Oh, like in college, like, yep. I don't see that there's anything and wrong wor- with that. Worst case scenario, you finish college, you have a college degree and you do something else right. other than your, your degree kind of, like most people. Right. Uh, well, the other things that he's finding out now yeah. is like, <laughs> like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the other things that he's finding out now are like, there, there are all these ancillary <laughs> benefits to having his wilderness EMT and his EMT. Like he goes to the ski hill and they're like, Oh, well, if you have your EMT, you know, they have some sort of a, uh, a program. Like you can work for the mountain for a couple of days a month and we'll give you a ski pass or whatever it is. So he's like, yeah, Sign me like, up. sounds great. <laughs> so you know he he gets the he gets the gear and and could go do that if he wanted to. Um, but you know there's lots of benefits to that. Besides, I mean, if you're living uh, an active lifestyle and you're taking your friends hunting or fishing, somebody needs to know something about what's going on. Yep. Like, so I always like that. But the firefighting man, that's that's a cool gig, and everybody that I that I know has been able to make quite a career outside of the fire. Right. And that's, that was my goal with Barefoot Adventures. Um, 
I had a, I was a late bloomer. Um, I didn't get into the fire service until I was 32. Um, went to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, and played soccer in college. And at the time I was like, well, that's what I want to do. I was, I want to play division one soccer. Mm. Um, and then when I wasn't playing soccer, I was like, Oh, I need to get out of here. Cause this is an expensive party. You're right on the same yeah. line as, as Brock. Brock wanted to play D one soccer and went over. Where'd you go? Italy? I went to Italy. Yeah. Uh, it, it sneaks up on you when soccer is your, your goal and then kind of ends. Yeah. yeah when, oh, it, when it ends, I didn't plan for that. All of a sudden I was like, I played soccer my entire life. And right. when I wasn't playing soccer for the first time, I was near Dean's list. I was like, huh, this is kind of weird. I was like, I didn't even know where the library was until my last two years in college. Um, so it, it's all perspective. Um, and even though I don't use my degree, I have a, a BS in animal science, which is kind of funny because people are like, it's like about cows and chickens and stuff like that. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, sort of. Um, but it doesn't matter what your degree is in different realms, like in the fire service for promotion, you have to have X amount of college credits. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I got more credits and I know what to do with. You want some? <laughs> um, and so it opens up other doors, even though it's not in the, the area that your degree is. Yeah. And um, then there are other, other jobs and opportunities. And that's what I keep telling my boys. I'm like, you know, I, I, I get it that you're taking these core classes and it seems useless and you had most of it in high school. And this is all, a uh, it's just the game. It's the college game. But if you can finish, you just have one more option and there are, you're, you don't want to be in a place to where you see that you want to do something really badly. And that thing requires a college degree to even make an application. Right. It doesn't even matter if you were smart or, or your grades were good or not good, or you paid attention at all. If you don't have the one prerequisite of a college degree, and, and of course there are plenty of other opportunities that you don't need a college degree, but you know, I'm just trying to tell them like, chances are if you don't have it, the one thing that you want to do is going to require You're going to it. Need it right? You're going to have a wife, probably have a kid on the way, and that's not the best time to rewind and right. go back to school with yeah. a bunch of 18-year-olds. When I graduated, <laughs> I so post-college where I was managing a dive shop up in Rhode Island, uh, I went to University of Rhode Island, and I was managing a dive shop while I was there. And then once I graduated, didn't know what I wanted to do kept managing the dive shop and I sent resumes out to every aquarium that was a member of the AZA in places that I wanted to go to. And I got two responses back out of 50 or 60 resumes I sent out. And yeah, they were job offers for $7 and 50 cents an hour. And I was like, I can't afford to live on $7 and 50 cents <laughs> an hour in some of these places. Um, and so I was like, well, I'll just stay in the dive, dive industry. Um, and then got tired of freezing my butt off in Rhode Island and moved to Florida, managed a dive shop in Daytona beach for a year. And then realized that there's 
not a whole lot of ocean diving um in daytona beach you have to go way offshore mm-hmm. uh, to some of the smaller patch reefs um and so we were doing most of our dives in the freshwater springs and i had been to key largo once before and i was like i want to go down to key largo and went down there and kind of weaseled my way into a dive master job even though i was an instructor um and then slowly got more and more students and at one point i was the head scuba instructor um, for one of the larger dive shops in key largo and had a blast and it the people i work for were awesome the lifestyle was great on my days off i would either go diving for fun or where i started picking up fly fishing mm. um and didn't know, really know what i was doing casting off a dock sunset it's beautiful just love the motion of casting and one night i'm casting and i'm stripping the line in and the next thing the line comes tight i'd never caught a fish on a fly <laughs> before and i'm like whoa and then i saw it and it jumped and it was a three and a half four foot long tarpon <laughs> nice. and i'm like whoa. well now i'm ruined <laughs> um and it was kind of funny because i'm I'm playing it in, it's jumping, people are coming in our boat, in their boats, and they're like, do you want us to grab it? And I'm like, no. And so I get it to the dock, and I thought it was done, and I reached down to lip it, and it took off. It snapped the rod, snapped the line, and I'm like, I just bought this rod (laughs) three hours beforehand. Oh, man. So I went back to Worldwide Sportsman, and they're like, what happened? I was like, I caught one fish and the rod broke. And he's like, it's a nine ten rod. That shouldn't do that. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. And he gave me a new one. And oh, I was yeah. like, awesome. So, so it's probably our friend Craig used to run the, run the, do you know him? He used to run the, the fly, fly shop out of worldwide sportsman there in Isla Mirada. Nicest guy. I'm, not, man I'm ever. not sure who it was at that time. Um, but it was kind of cool. Um, I actually had a cat. My first casting lesson was with Lefty Cray, <laughs> right on um, down there. Um, so from that point on, I was obviously hooked on scuba diving. Got hooked on fly fishing. Um, took a break from fly fishing when I moved up to Maryland. Didn't really know the area and how to fish it. Um, didn't really know that hey, fly fishing in these waters is great. Yeah. Um, and got hooked up buddy of mine. Um, we'd go out and either fish off my boat and then he wound up buying the exact same boat as me. (laughs) Um, and Morgan and I would sign up for tournaments and we'd enter tournaments in the fly division. And, and it was kind of funny. I'd most of the time I'd be running the boat and he'd be on the bow and we didn't consciously do it, but we took turns one year. He would win that tournament. The next year, I would win the tournament. And we'd go back and forth. And and the years that he won, I'd come in second. Hmm. And then it would flip-flop. So guys were like, oh, Morgan and Mike are fishing. So it's and a that's battle, pretty good if it's you a can, battle for third place. Well, it's pretty good <laughs> if the people on the same boat are getting first and second place. Then you're, you know, like you're really in the fish. Right. Like, and usually it's the other way around. Like, like one boat gets first and another boat gets second. And then the secondary anglers aren't even on the, 
on the board, you know, hardly. They right. Don't catch so we, we enjoyed that. And, and I enjoyed guiding him. It was my responsibility to put him on fish. And if I caught fish, great. Um, of course, when he caught something bigger than me, I'd be pissed <laughs> at him and, and be real quiet in the back of the boat and fishing quietly until I got a bigger fish than he did. Um, so it was a inner boat competition. Yeah. So where does the where does the paddle boarding come in on on Barefoot Adventures? Like when we look at your website, you've got um, down below. It's it's got like the paddle boards. So is that what you're mostly doing? Um, right now, I have my guide license. I got my captain's license years ago when I was in Key Largo, um, and up in Maryland, nobody does any guided paddleboard stuff um there's a few shops that'll just take people out recreationally um just a paddle um for sightseeing and i saw an opportunity where i could do that Mm -hmm. but also create my niche market um and that's fishing off the paddle boards um i did run into a a speed bump along the way in that for legality reasons all my clients up until this past october 1st were required to have their own fishing license Mm -hmm. so if they wanted to come out fishing with me i'd be like that's great hey it's going to be this much money we're going to do this and that and this and that and do you have a fishing license and if they did great no problem if they didn't if they're coming down from uh from pennsylvania or from delaware or wherever Mm -hmm. um i'd say you need to get a, at least a one day fishing license and it's just another hoop to jump through. And right. it became, came a pain in the butt. That and would keep somebody from going after they're ready to, to potentially do a charter and, and, and spend the day out there. And the one thing that's going to get them is actually getting a fishing license. And because then the, it starts to add up the cost right. and they'll go, well, I can go out on this fishing boat and I don't have to get a license. And All right. so well, I'll go do ahead. That. It um, seems like that person, it seems like that's not the same person. Like you're, you're worried about, you can go out on a head boat and fish cheaper or go on a paddle board and work your ass off all day and have to have good balance and, and be able to actually be on the paddle board. That doesn't seem like the same person. No, not really. Uh, but it, it was a niche. Yeah. Um, And so. If it was more competitive and say, hey, listen, I now have the ability to offer all my clients a fishing license, so you don't have to even jump through that hoop. Right. Do they do that um, now? They allow that? They do. Last last winter, um, I actually contacted my state senator and my state representative, and we drew up a bill, um, which was really cool because it was government in motion, and I had no idea about any hmm. of this. Um but we drew up a bill and they cross-filed it in the House and the Senate and it went to committee and and it passed both the House and the Senate um, unanimously. I testified in front of both the Senate and the House. Wow. And so then I got to have the opportunity to sit in front of our state government or governor while he signed it into law. So it wow. was kind of cool. So the law wow. is that... Um Anyone with a captain's license can can buy a six pack. Like I know that in Florida, we 
we can like the the license that we buy will be for six passengers right. or whatever. So I'm sure every state's a little bit different about your fishing license. No, it, it was it was the same so, for six people. So you so can have six you, people with if you. If you're a captain, you can buy a quote unquote charter boat sticker, and that would cover everybody fishing off that vessel. Mm-hmm. Well, I had the opportunity to do that, but the downside is there is no way in that law for it because it was per vessel. So unless I had everybody fishing off one paddleboard, right. they weren't covered. Right. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah. And so it was a small technicality, but you had to undertake writing a right. bill, going through committee, going that's, through the second reading, the third reading. It's really incredible that you got their attention on something like that, because you're telling me first that you're the only one basically doing this and you get the attention of your senator and congressman. And and then they're like, well, yeah, that doesn't seem fair. So let's change it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool because um, that just seems like uh, that they would be looking for making a difference in w- where it would make a difference for more people than just like, right. here's this guy that. And, and, it, and mine's a niche market where we're off paddle boards, but this also covers any other paddle sports. So, uh, and so it wasn't just for my business or for what I'm doing. So right. it's, it's guys that go, Hey, cause kayak fishing is huge up in, in the Chesapeake region. And so you got guys that don't really know what they're doing, but they want to get into kayak fishing. Mm-hmm. So if somebody gets their guide license, they now have an opportunity to form a business and as the state sees it as more revenue, more yeah, money. It's interesting because other states see it other ways and even other uh, agencies see it differently. And there, there's like this push for certain areas that there was a, a, a guide was able to purchase an annual pass for him and his customers. And now this particular agency wants each one. Of, they're just putting the pencil to the paper and they're going, well, he's paying $150 or whatever, $201 or whatever it is for a year. And he's bringing 300 people in here. But we charge $10 a head for other people coming into this particular park. So that should be six thousand or $3,000 instead of. 201. And that was... And there's hundreds of these people doing this. And so let's change this and have each one of these people, instead of allowing the guide to buy that one license to make everything easier and more people coming to the state, they want to now make each one of those people pay the the head fee, which to your point makes it just one more step and makes it more difficult. And I understand that the park needs to make some revenue and there's obviously a good source of revenue but on the other hand it's not the only place that these people fish and if you make it that difficult then they just won't go there right and and, and that was one of the the issues that they brought up and the financial component uh, exactly what you were saying is like well you're going to cover these people that are going out to fish with you at, under your license I was like yeah but what's to say that they loved it? They go into a shop. They want to buy the same stuff I have, the same paddleboard, the same cooler seat that I use, mm-hmm. the same rod, the same reel, everything like that. Because I turned them on. So now every year 
they're going to buy their own license. So you're expanding the market versus looking for the here and now money grab. Right. Um, so the potential and, and that same argument is everywhere. Um, as far as the amount of money that is not necessarily pinpoint directed at fishing, but it's all the other stuff, the hotels, the gas stations, the restaurants, Mm -hmm. all that money is because of this pinpoint reason of fishing. And so that's, it's so wide reaching. Um, and that's one of the, the avenues I took to approach this. I was like, that that's true. How did you even know that that was possible? Like, did you, do you know these congressmen and your Senator? Did I, I just happened to run into them, um, at one of our, I live in Chestertown, Maryland and, and it's an old revolutionary war town. And every Memorial day weekend, we have the Chestertown tea party. Not the political way, but they actually have a reenactment um, where we have a schooner that makes birth in Chestertown. So they take the Sultana out and they reenact it and they throw, they have the Tory toss and they throw tea into the river. Um, And if I'm correct, I believe the Chestertown Tea Party, where they revolted against that, actually preceded the Boston Tea Party. We didn't get as famous as the Boston Tea Party. Um, I could be mistaken, but I I think ours happened before that. Um, so anyway, it's a it's a big street festival, and you go down and people are sell, selling their wares, and and you have the Democratic committee, and you have the Republican committee, and and all the the elected officials are around, shaking hands and kissing babies and all that stuff, and I just happen to bend their ear. Hmm. And then I followed that up because I'm sure they totally forgot about it. And I sent them an email and then I sent them another email with my proposal and why and everything. And they finally got back to me and I'm like, Whoa, because it, they had to wait until they were in legislative, uh, legislative, the session, um, to, do anything hmm. and so it was all written up and they cross submitted it they're like yeah this sounds great we'll put it in a bill in the house yeah this sounds great and we'll put a house or a bill into the senate wow that's pretty cool because most people would just complain about it honestly and not actually do anything and that's been an ongoing theme uh, with a lot of the guests, whether it's Blair Wiggins or the Captains for Clean Water guys or or so many other people that have seen that there's something going on and actually done something to make a change by law that, you know, it's it's really cool. But I mean, and, and we've seen it on things like water quality issues like what Blair Wiggins is doing in the Mosquito Lagoon with the clam project and then what the Captains for Clean Water people are doing. It's really, those are huge issues that have massive financial impact to the state and massive financial impact to the, to the nation. And, you know, what they're doing is affecting the way that our great grandchildren will grow up. So, I mean, that's obviously a huge issue. seems like it was much easier to get someone's ear, even though that there are special interest groups and all, all sorts of other people that are trying to keep 
yeah, someone yeah. from doing things. But it seems like on those really huge issues, that's something. But when it comes to something really small like this, I mean, in the scheme of things, what you did is a minuscule yep. little dot on the radar. And But to be able to get someone's attention and actually make a change for that, that really gives hope to not only people that are trying to make a real big change, but also like, if you don't like it, that's how the system works. And it actually does work that and way. And that's, I was so impressed. I was like, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I've Did, never, I've never had that this experience. This is from that old, that old cartoon that we watched as a kid. The Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah. And, Conjunction Junction. Yeah. What's and, your function? And, and, and have, then the, I'm just a bill on right. Capitol Hill. I know. I, I love like, that. Now I understand this. <laughs> right. But you could get a bill passed for a lot of. Different and, things. I and mean, that was the other cool part. Um, going forth with this idea, and even though in the grand scheme of things it was so small and a focus on such a small population, um, but the coolest part is my kids got to see, hey, dad's working on this because this is, yes, it's going to help him, but it's also going to help the community around. And it shows that you can't just sit back and complain about government. If you step up and do something, yeah, you can you can make changes for what you want. Um, and so they got to see that firsthand. They were like, yeah, dad, high fives all around. Um, how, how old are your kids? They're 13 and 10. Both boys? Yep. Right on. Um, so, and they're, they're pretty much brainwashed um, from me, from the CCA aspect. I'm the chapter president for... Chestertown chapter. Um, and we do a lot of, a lot of intergovernment work and stuff like that, um, with striped bass and, um, and oyster replenishing. Um, so that starts to make a little more sense. Like if you, if you have done a lot of this work with CCA, had you done a lot of that work before you made this or I was aware of it. Okay. So at least you're aware of it, aware yeah. of how it works mm -hmm. and aware that like that Senator and that Congressman, they're actually getting paid to listen to what you have to say. Right. Like whether they like it or not bothering. I mean, you may be bothering them, but that's kind of their job is to listen to mm -hmm. the people who elected them or might elect them next. And so then that, that starts to make a little more sense that you had seen things work like through CCA and seen CCA make, changes or are aware of historical changes that had been made. Yeah. But again, it's it's a really big issue. Like a a fisheries issue has massive economic impact. Not that not that the fish and license thing doesn't, but actually those people, they're the state's probably more likely to make money off of each one of those people buying a license than they are selling you a a license out of convenience. Um so that's where I, I it's impressive that you got that through because it would be easier just to say, well, he's going to take 150 people fishing this year. And if each one of those people bought a license, we'd be making a lot more money. So let's just leave it the way it is. Right. right? Unless you look in the future and I turn those 150 people on to right. avid anglers. Right. And so they can grab that money now and then not have a clue or, or they turn them away because they're requiring them to buy this license and buy a trip. Right. Um, so there's, there's, 
you're paying dividends for the future. <laughs> How much trouble do you have when you're, um, I mean, <laughs> I'll preface this by saying I started fly fishing. I started being a fly fishing guide in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. It just so happened that the first couple of years I was there, the river runs through it, came out. And so there was this influx of people that wanted to be like Brad Pitt in the movie, but really had never held a fly rod in their hand ever. And so I got really good at teaching someone how to fly fish in a very short amount of time in the parking lot, the drift boats in the water. And I'm going to give you a five minute casting lesson. And in 15 minutes, you might catch a fish. Like it was a wonderful time for that. And it was really good to, to teach someone and to get your spiel down. So tight that you could really take someone that had never held a fly rod and and in 15 minutes they could catch a fish that's pretty cool but now i'm looking at what you're doing and it's like okay now you throw in a paddle board into the mix like what are the challenges there because you know the the you're obviously fit you're getting ready to paddle 300 miles on a on a paddle board you've got great balance i'm sure you're used to being on that a lot of people are getting off of the off of their chair in their office. They haven't been fishing in a year. They've never been on a paddleboard. Like that seems like a challenge. It, it, it can be. Um, and no, you, I preface it with, no, I'm not taking these people out basically from November until April. Water's too cold. Mm -hmm. The, the possibility of them falling in and never wanting to go anywhere near it <laughs> is pretty high. Um, but the fly fishing aspect is, is such a small portion. Um, and, and I like to say, well, evolution takes time. So to go out and never be on a paddleboard and try to fly fish off that paddleboard is a recipe for disaster. Um, the way my boards are set up, they're pretty sturdy boards to begin with. So when I take out groups of people, um, just to paddle, um, sightseeing, um, they're like, oh, I haven't paddled before. I was like, no problem. Start on your knees. And then when you get comfortable, then you can stand up. Now it's a little bit different. I have cooler seats so they can go from their knees to sitting down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is no different from kayaking and then just stand up. And so from fishing or from straight paddling to now let's add fishing into it. Use spinning rods, mm -hmm. um, as what I use. Um, and then if they've been paddling and they're proficient, yeah. And that's when you take that next step. So to take the total noob who's never done anything, put them on a paddleboard and say, here's a fly rod, go have fun. Yeah. That's what I was thinking I mean, about. It, like that seems great video coverage <laughs> and for laughs, but, uh, but for success and enjoyment of those people. Yeah. Not, not so, as much. And, and so there are obviously, you know, a good number of guides up there. Fishing's really good at, at certain times of the year. What is your angle to get people to come to you on the paddleboards? Like, are you going to a special area that you can't get to otherwise? 
or is it just really pretty there or is it real calm or like what is what All is the, the reason above. that someone would <laughs> would choose a paddleboard trip over a a, a boat trip uh, probably the the biggest reason is because it's different uh, they've chances are they've never done it um so it's the uniqueness of the experience um yeah can you run up and down the the bay um in a boat and catch more fish probably and catch bigger fish probably but some of the areas that we go to they're more scenic i most days i go out depending on the site i'll guarantee i was like hey I'm going to guarantee you, you're going to see a bald eagle. Hmm. And five minutes later, I'm like, there's your bald eagle. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's the entire package. So the scenery around you, um, the wildlife that you see, the fishing's different. Um, so the experience of hooking up to a fish while you're on that paddleboard if if you catch something of a decent size, they're not going to forget that experience. They're going to, because they're going to go past you. They're going to get pulled by that, that right. 20 inch catfish <laughs> channel cat. And it's just going to keep going. And they're like, Whoa. And I, I've had people, I've gone out by myself fishing, hooked into a big catfish and you got other people launching in their kayaks and I'd go past them and just holding that bent rod. And they're like, what is going on here? <laughs> um, so it's such a unique experience. And if you were to hook up into something bigger, um, the upper Chester River, uh, my home waters, we have a lot of big carp, like four or five foot long carp, which they're tanks. <laughs> and... It's amazing. How do you catch those? You can cheat and use corn. Um, I don't. Is that cheating? I don't know. I, I like. I'll, some I'll use corn. Say, um, <laughs> and because they're bottom feeders, um, they'll they'll hit a small lure. Um, on fly, there's a whole area of fly fishing for carp. Right. And and it's amazing. Um, so when you're, when you're doing that, like a lot of the carp guys are, are doing with uh, using crayfish flies, yep. a lot of them are using like kind of woolly booger style flies that are yep. designed to be on the bottom, almost like bonefish flies. Um, is that what that, that species of carp is eating? Like they'll eat yeah, all of those things? Depending on the time of year and you uh -huh. have mulberries. Um, I've got a guy that... Uh, Carp is one of his staples that he, he chases huh. and he fishes the Potomac um, and the tidal basin. Um, and it's pretty wild. He catches carp all, a bunch of time with his clients and they'll and catch what, bass. Like when in, they're in that situation, what are they doing? The carp? Are they eating like... I, I see them tailing. I see them sucking stuff off the surface. And I don't know a lot about carp, but I'm interested in them because they seem like the they seem like the freshwater redfish. And they kind of seem like the freshwater tarpon almost to a point where you're talking about these ones that are five feet long. I mean, they're like these grass carp sometimes in, in ponds that people have. And I've tried to fish for those and they're super spooky. Yep. Like really spooky. Plus so I'm I'm kind of like, well, I could catch a largemouth really easily here. But that fish 
has is sucking something off the surface and I can't get within a hundred feet of it before it right. knows that I'm there. And there are certain areas that uh, that's what they chase. Um, and I, unfortunately I didn't get a chance to go on the trip, but my buddy Morgan, he went out to Michigan and I think it's was Beaver Island and they're sight casting right. the water's right. gin clear. Yes. They're sight casting for these massive. Yeah. I've carp. heard about that. And, and then you're, your bycatch, if the carp doesn't take it, you're like, oh, we got another smallie. And they're trophy size smallmouth bass. Mm. It's like, oh, yeah, we got another smallie. <laughs> right. I've, I, no, I've heard about that. I want to I do that, um, the carp fishing. I think it sounds pretty pretty cool. Um, but there are certain places where they. it seems like the situation is far more um, doable than other situations. Right. Yeah. Ours are... Um, because it's all tidal creeks, um, and we have, do have some grass beds, and but the water's super muddy um, because the water's constantly going in, mm. coming out, and so it, the, the clarity of it isn't isn't great. You almost have to go on a day where there's no wind, the sun's got to be high, um, and where you can see them off in the distance and. A lot of times you're not seeing them. You're seeing the the mud plume mm-hmm. of them feeding, right? Which is different from the mud plume when they say, "I'm out of here," right? Because they'll splash you. No different I mean, than bone fishing, really. Right. I mean, redfish will do kind of a similar thing, but bonefish really do that. And sometimes you see the muds. Well, almost always you see the muds a lot sooner than you see the bonefish, and then you're you're following those muds. And as they pop up, you're getting a better idea of where these fish are and how fast they're moving yep. and how far ahead of the muds you should be looking to actually see the bodies in the water. And, and, and there's been other occasions where, for whatever reason, that whether I stalked them properly, but I wouldn't see them until I looked down to paddle again. I'm like, it's <laughs> right there. And I'll actually nudge it with my paddle and see how big it is. And it'll take off. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Those those fish sound. Uh, that sounds like a good way to do it, especially if you could do it off a paddleboard. Um, and and the the type of fish that we catch, yeah. When people think of Maryland and and fishing, striped bass is going to be their number one that they think about. Um, but because it's such a cool est- estuary and it's brackish, you could be sitting there fishing, catching striped bass. Redfish, speckled trout, and then not move very far, and you can catch a largemouth bass hmm. and a pickerel, and and it's it's wild. Um, so different times of the year are when we target different fish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's starting to get colder up there, and my winter go to fish year round as long as the the lakes. Don't freeze up, but I'll, I target, um, pickerel Hmm. and, and some of those pickerel get, get big in those big old mill ponds. Really? And like Like, compared to a pike, a pickerel is going to be smaller. Like the biggest pickerel is going to be kind of a mid-sized pike or yeah. Yeah. So 27 inches, 28 inches is going to be a, a really big. Are they as aggressive? I've never fished a pickerel. They're as aggressive as pike. And they they love taking the fly and that's that's why i love targeting mm, cool so 
Cool. So you got a lot going on, man. You got these races. You got your your charter service. Um, if you were to uh, blue sky in the next in the next year or two, where where would you like to see yourself be, and how can my audience help you get there? Um, I'm just slowly adding adding to Barefoot Adventures. Um, and at, at this stage of the game, it's it's a time concern. Um, having two active active boys. Um, my 10-year-old is addicted to soccer. Um, every day, Tyler's either going to practice, playing on a school team, playing on his travel team, or wanting to play on the side yard at our house. Um, so traveling with him. Um, my oldest son, Aiden, he's a beast. Um, he's six foot, <laughs> and he finally found basketball. And he is addicted to basketball. He's shooting baskets before school, after school, working with a, a coach. Um, and we're like, yeah, keep growing and keep playing. Mm -hmm. um, but that with work, I do what I can um, as far as, as a business and charters. Um, I sold my my old 17 foot Mako and got a little bit bigger boat with the hopes of this coming year. Um, so 2020 I'll be running more charters off the boat. Hmm. Um, and then couple that with hopefully more charters fishing, unique experience out on the water. Yeah. And then you get the that racks. Like we've got those mana rack things that, that right? hold the paddleboard and we can carry. I've built them. Man, and my first, my first trial of those don't don't do that with PVC. <laughs> it doesn't end well. Um, I tried that the first ones I built. They they worked great until you're doing 25 knots because that was one of the plans is use the boat as a mothership. Mm -hmm. And now I can fish a whole bunch of different areas that. Is other otherwise inaccessible on a paddleboard, right? right. Uh, unless you're going to do one of these races that I'm doing, um, just to go fishing. Um, so, so yeah, that's. I'm gonna after this year, I'm gonna ease back on the the long distance paddleboard races um, after I complete the Everglades Challenge, um, and then get back more into fishing. Because it's it's been a, a tough balance on days where I was like, oh, it'd be beautiful to be out fishing, but I got to do do a training paddle, mm -hmm. and I can't do both because the training paddle's gonna take six hours. Right, I'm paddling for six hours. I only have seven hours of free time before I have to pick up the kids from school, or what have you, or work, or all that. So it's uh, it's it's been tough. And so a little bit at a time, adding more and more stuff. Um, I usually take all my vacation time over the summer. Um, so I like to be outdoors. I don't like to be inside. When it's cold and nasty, I'll, I'll go to work. Um, so it's, it's, it's cool in that aspect because our schedule, uh, our schedule allows us so much time by just taking one day off. So if I take one day off, 
we work a 24 hour shift and then we're off for two days. So you got the two days before, take a day off. And then two days after she so got five days off. Hmm. And that's, that's ultimately why a lot of firefighters are able to do other stuff on right. the side. Right. Um, they work their schedule that way and able to take decent time off, but you're still putting in the hours at work. Um, so, so as far as this race goes, the, the, the 300 miler, what do you think it's going to, what are you going to need to do to change? What are you going to change to finish that race? Um, probably the biggest change I made was putting that rudder on the back. Mm. Um, the rudder on the back of the board, a streamlined, the actual board itself is a lower profile board. Um, and more mental conditioning. Um, the physical aspect is easy. It was like, okay, go do this until you want to puke. <laughs> and that's, that's easy for me. It's the, oh my gosh, I can't move my arms. My back hurts. My knees hurt. Keep paddling. And that's, it becomes much more of a mental game. Um, so it's just working on strengthening the mental game and essentially embracing the suck. Yeah. Um, because you can hope it's going to be sunny and warm and the wind's at your back, but it's going to be rainy and cold and the wind's going to be in your face. It's a guarantee. And it's funny. I got a text message from Josh and he's like, Hey, good luck this weekend. I'm not going to make it, make it there. Hope the wind's at your back. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just the way, that's just the way it goes. I mean, dang, all we got to do is, is decide we're going to film a show and the wind all of a sudden blows 25 from any direction. You know, it just, it just always happens. That happens with tournaments. It happens with races. It happens with everything. Just kind of the, the, basically the worst case scenario is pretty much what you're going to expect right. on and, something like this. And that's what we you embrace. I mean, if it's nice out, you go paddling. If it's not nice out, you go paddling. If it's snowing, you go paddling. Um, what? And the, the other thing that's interesting, and I didn't really touch on it, but the boards that I'm paddling in these races, I built mm. from scratch. Um, so who knows? Um, five years down the road when when I'm no longer having to be at work, I may be sanding more boards and they let you work on those boards at the firehouse or no, no, <laughs> no. Um, and I made the mistake and I made this one at home in the garage and covered everything with foam and, and paint and everything. So you need a shop in, in the future, need a shop just because go to shop, work hard. If, if your shop's at home, you don't get anything done. Mm. So the build took a lot longer. Um, always wanted to go out and tweak something before I should have and messed that up. And then, so the first build went super smooth. Um, the board I built last year, the board I built this year was nothing but problem after problem after problem. But the end result, it's a nicer board. It's a faster board. And the one you built last year was the first time you built your own board? Sort of. How did you get into building a board? What made you be like, you know, I could, I could make my own board. Um, 
the financial aspect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, uh, my buddy and I, we built, we quickly realized building boards when you're younger, mm-hmm. um, what you can do and what you can't do. And we shaped out this nice long board and it was beautiful and put a nice stringer in it and everything. And then we went to glass it and we used the wrong resin and it ate the entire board. Mm. And just, we were left with like a potato chip with a wooden stringer. Um, but it's always been in the back of my mind. And like there was, a an episode where guys actually built a, built a boat. I, I can't remember the name of it, but they built a boat for expedition, a redfish expedition. Okay. Um, uh, explore, I think I, th- I, think yes. I saw that. Yeah. And I watched all those episodes. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm building a skiff. That's awesome. And all out of foam. Mm-hmm. So I was like, when it came time, like I need an expedition style board, which don't really exist. They do, but to the tune of five, $6,000. Whereas I can do, get all the material and build it for a thousand. So big difference. Is that pretty rare in paddle boarding for people to choose to build their own paddle boards? Or is that something that you saw other people doing and you're like, that's cool. It's pretty rare. Um, there's, there's a guy that I met online, actually one of the, the four guys that finished the, the EC, um, Shane, he, he's built his own boards. Um, so when you get out of the, the norm, yeah, then the necessity Hmm. for building something different comes into it. So I was like, I want a 17 to 18 foot long board that I can pedal 300 miles. Well, with 50 to 60 pounds of gear mm-hmm. that doesn't exist. Yeah. So it's like, well, I'll make one. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully that'll be the difference between this year and last year. What about food? I mean, 300 miles, are you getting resupplied at these checkpoints? Do you, you can, um, but last year that was one of my Achilles heels. Um, I attempted to do it while on keto mm. um, because I was like, oh, keto, that I can eat all the beef jerky I want and the specialized bars and the fat bombs and stuff like that. And so my caloric intake was going to be fine mm. with all that. The downside is what you don't realize is all that food needs a whole lot more water than you normally drink. So if you're eating all this beef jerky and that's your meal, well, that beef jerky's got a lot of sodium Mm. and you need a lot of water to dilute that sodium. And so my diet was, was a miss last year Mm. for that. Um, And so this year I'm back to, essentially the same type of food that you would take on a camping trip. So dehydrated packets where you put a little bit of water in. And, and are you concerned about um, the distribution of calories, like protein, carbohydrates, and fat, or you're just kind of going with whatever's the lightest? 
Um, pretty much what's ever at the lightest. Yeah. Um, and the number of calories that you're burning per day, it doesn't, you're physically not able to consume that much Mm. because it's all going to be burned off. Um, my little computer thing that estimates the number of calories burned, I was burning between six and 7,000 calories. And I was like, I don't even know what 7,000 calories worth of food looks like. And in, in one day, be able to eat it all. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, I can eat 7,000 calories. No problem. I'll start with pancakes um, (laughs) and syrup and, and I can, and butter and I can, I can eat 7,000 calories, but I can't, I don't know that I can carry 7,000 calories times seven. Like that, that's, why I'm asking about being resupplied at these at these places. Can you send food ahead nope. or send anything ahead? I mean, it's entirely what you start with, you have to finish with. What you with. start with, you finish with. Wow. That's that's a real challenge because I mean, you know, there's some very dense stuff and you could probably take some take some sort of a shake mix or something like that, yep. which can be very calorically dense and and give you kind of what you need. But still, I mean, you're talking about a really small place to keep it um super challenging environment to keep it dry in a lot of cases that's crucial like if it's a powder mix or something like that you can't get that wet at all and then you have like a a weight issue so 50 pounds of food and water i mean really i mean a a gallon weighs eight pounds Mm -hmm. you're gonna drink at least a gallon a day yep so do you have any sort of um can you get water anywhere else? What you about can, water? You can replenish your water okay. supply at the checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And if you pull up to somebody's house and use their hose or whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, the most the most water I was planning on was carrying three gallons at a time. Mm. And that would be from Chocoloski into the into the glades before the. Now, before are people um, like the people who have finished this race, are they at all forthcoming about their, the way that they pack their board and, and the things that they take, or is that like not something you ask? uh, And that's a cool thing is it's not necessarily, it's not a competition between individuals. It's a competition against yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I've gone through Scott, Scott put together an awesome video where he goes through his bags and what he's taking, why he's taking it. And then while he's doing this video, he's like, I don't even know why I'm bringing this. So he's going through it again, mm-hmm. taking stuff out or, and how he's packing. Um, so they're very forthcoming with how to pack stuff and what to bring, what not to bring. Um, last year I thought it'd be great. I was like, well, batteries, I'm going to need lots of batteries because I had headlamps and I got GPS and I have my spot and I probably had four pounds of batteries. Mm. I changed the batteries in my spot before they needed to be once. I was like, that was ridiculous. All I needed was four batteries for that. Right. My headlamps, they're LEDs. I didn't change the batteries in my LEDs at all. And my GPS... I didn't even use it. I didn't even turn it on. Hmm. That's my backup. I have paper charts. 
all marked up with stuff and distances and times and stuff like that. Um, so just that simple thing, shave all three pounds off your pack. Boom, right. Done. Got a different sleeping bag. That's not going to pack this big. It packs it down real small. Yeah. Um, so it's simplifying and how much you can shave off while still being able to check everything that you need to have. Um, and then everything that you want to have, right? Not your ultimate wants because that's a recreational paddle. It, you know, also have to remember that, Hey, guess what? For the next 15 hours, you're paddling. So get on your horse four miles an hour for 15 hours. Boom. You got 60 miles. That's your day. If you go faster than that, cool. You either paddle fast or paddle shorter if you're going faster. Or you get ahead of schedule. Or you get ahead of schedule. And getting ahead of schedule is better than than anything because of the unknown of the weather. Because mm. all of a sudden, that crossing at the end from Flamingo to Key Largo that should only take you eight hours is now taking you 16 hours because mm. they got a cold front move through. Right. And it's brutal. So what kind of draw bags do you use zipper or, or top roll? I, I use roll um, because I'm not going in them very often. Mm. Um, the stuff that I use, I actually have a, a zip. It's kind of a like a day pack um, dry bag that has a zipper. Um, but all my other stuff, they're dry bags packed in dry bags. Right. So it's a dry duffel packed with color-coded dry bags. So in this pink bag is stuff that you would associate with the bathroom. And I got that from Josh. Josh is like, this is my bathroom bag. This is my kitchen bag. And, and it makes sense because right. when you're delirious, um, and you've been paddling for so long, you go, huh? Okay. I'm at camp. I need my bed and I need my, um, my bug stuff. And that's it. That's all I need. And that's what you grab. And then you roll everything up and put it back. <laughs> so organization and then getting used to knowing where everything is with your eyes closed is is key and that's luckily that's one thing that i'm good at and that's probably from fire department being a paramedic right, right. so the inside of that medic unit it doesn't matter b shifts medic may keep that in a compartment down here well in the morning i go where is it put that back up there because at OU on 30 when somebody needs it I want to go like this and have it hmm. so yeah well sounds like you're, you've thought it out really well so uh, man good luck this weekend and then we'll certainly be uh, how does how do you watch this Everglades challenge uh, they have a tracker on their website and it's uh, watertribe.org watertribe.org we'll put that in the notes then people can Check that out. 
Watertribe.org. Okay. And it goes over the different events that they have. So they have the Everglades Challenge. Um, so if you go to the top and you go to the events tab. Mm-hmm. So there you go. You have the Everglades Challenge. And then if you think that's nuts, they also have the Ultimate Florida. Or not the Ultimate. The, the Ultimate uh, 1200. And so that's basically going all the way around the state. Yeah, I'm going to do that in a skiff, and I think it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and it does have a, a portage. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, how long does that 1,200 miles take? I don't know. There's, Has anybody done and, that? And I I don't necessarily know if there's a time frame on it. I haven't looked into it because I don't have that much time. <laughs> um, But... The other events, and they are actually just adding back an event in North Carolina um, next June, I believe, and that's a Blackbeard Challenge. Um, so that's what's I, a Blackbeard Challenge? Uh, is it on the site? It's on there. If you go yeah, back, right up there, three hundred miles. So there's that one, and then there's a shortened race as well um so blackbeard and everything has a whole lot of history in that area in north carolina um and that's an event that they used to have and then it went away so they're re starting it back up again hmm. pretty wow. nuts pretty nuts so with your train we're gonna have to cut this off here shortly but um with your training, are you mostly training on the board or are you doing some off board training as well? Both. 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 Yeah. What do you do off the water? Um, I work out and I get to work early. Mm. Um, and we had a gym at work at work and so I'll work out for forty five minutes in the morning. What kind of workouts work? are you doing? Um crossfit ish. Mm-hmm. Um Sort of play it by ear. You pay um, a lot of attention to your core. It seems like that's incredibly core. Um, that's that's usually how I wrap up my workouts. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on what event I have coming up. So anytime I would do reps preparing for this. Okay, you're doing a set of 31. Because it's a 31 mile paddleboard race mm -hmm. on Saturday. So if you're going to do push-ups, you're doing 31 push-ups. And then... A lot of times I'll do five sets of that. So I'll do five different exercises at 31 reps and then do five, three to five sets. So does that mean when you get closer to the Everglades thing, you do five different exercises at 300 reps? <laughs> it'll be, it'll be tempered out or divided up somehow, mm -hmm. but yeah. So the, what about the, uh, the ski erg? Do you use that? It seems like a similar, similar motion of, of, you know, paddling, not, I, not identical, but. One of the, the machines with the pulleys, um, what I did is I took a broom handle, mm -hmm. put a loop on the end and clip on that. And then I'll stand on a BOSU ball. So I have the mm -hmm. unsteadiness. Mm -hmm. So you're working on your core and your, your minute movements and your legs mm -hmm. the whole time. And then then you're mimicking your paddle stroke. Right, right. Um, 
and there are different machines that get fancy and stuff like that, but that's the closest that I've come to mimicking paddle strokes hmm. and do it both dynamic and static. So mm-hmm. put more weight on it and hold it um, versus doing a thousand reps, which right. takes too much time. Right. So that ski erg might be good too. Anyway, well, good luck to you, man. It's awesome. It's really some it. cool stuff. Thanks for having really me like on. It. You're welcome, man. So how does everybody find you? Uh, I have my website, which is uh, barefoot-adventures.net and .com. Um, I'm on Instagram as Chesapeake T-Jam. And I'm also on there as uh, off-duty fishing. Okay. Off-duty. And fishing. what's the, where do you, where does somebody follow the, um, the, the races like that water tribe is the website. Do they, do they have social media? Um, they do have social media. It's a closed group, mm. but off that webpage, um, if you pull it up, there's actually a tracker. Okay. Um, and under features, it'll say tracking map. Yeah. This one right here. Mm. And it's, it's pretty neat. Cause they'll, uh, then you get to pick whatever you want. So if, I don't know if they still have 2019 on there. Yeah, go up a little bit right there. You see 2019. And then regenerate view. I don't know if they still have it up on there. Looks like they might have pulled it down. Hmm. I saw something try to load there. Oh, well. Well, they'll check it out. But yeah, everybody has their little icon. You can follow them. You can break it down into if you just want to see the sub guys um i don't know how many people i know scott's gonna do it josh is gonna do it i'm in my buddy sean's gonna do it um i don't know if chip's gonna do it so that's five from last year and we think we might pick up two or three more um so each year we're trying to grow our class and basically recruit more crazy people to attempt this sounds cool um it sounds like something I'd like to do. So, yeah, I just have a few of... things I have to do before I can do that. Just a few more challenges. <laughs> <laughs> Starting with the skiff challenge. I'm, I'm going to just put that one on the top of the list right now. And then, then maybe you never that know. That looks brutal. I mean, I love the, I love the, the paddling. It's, it's great. And that seems like something, seems like something really yeah, cool. We'll either catch really you out of the water areas. either up in, Ches- in Chesapeake or... Yeah, I'd like that. Down I'd love to see waters. that. I'd love to see that area up there and fish it off a paddleboard. That'd be super cool. Anyway, well, man, thanks for doing this. And uh, these guys will be following you. We'll watch as awesome. you complete the Everglades Challenge this year. Yeah, yeah. Chatterjack first, Saturday. Right on. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. See you.